Let's talk. Docs. Hello, welcome to Let's Talk Docs, a show where we explore the intersection of technical documentation, open source, and community. This is your host, Portia and Eric. Here at Let's Talk Docs, we reach out to folks in the field who've elevated the craft of writing and maintaining the docs. You'll hear the stories about technologists who fostered a culture of learning and inclusion through documentation. And today we get to talk to Mike Jang, who is a staff technical writer for Cobalt. To figure out what to write, Mike spends much of his time analyzing and testing new software. Mike has written a couple of dozen technical books, including multiple editions of McGraw Hills, RHCSA slash RHCE Red Hat Linux Certification Study Guide. He is also the author of O'Reilly's Linux Annoyances for Geeks. Welcome, Mike. Thanks so much. And I'm honored by the introduction. Honestly, I just want to read this book, Linux Annoyances for Geeks. Gosh, I wrote in 2006. Basically, it's the top 100 Linux annoyances at the time, which I believe have changed a lot. (laughs) But it was written for O'Reilly and their processes. Well, I told the acquisitions editor that it, it felt like graduate studies in Linux. And you said there's more annoyances books? Like, is this a series? This is like a genre? <laughs> well, I don't know how far it's gone. I know there's Linux network annoyances, Windows annoyances, and a few others. Oh my God, this is like its own series. I have to check this out. Awesome, awesome, awesome. <laughs> Let's start with the first question. The basics. How did you get started in technical writing? Well, as we've indicated, I used to write technical books. You've mentioned a couple of them, and I did that through the first decade of the 2000s. And towards the end of the decade, I realized brick and mortar books are not the future. I saw the Barnes and Nobles and Borders that were closing and thought, I have to find something else. The royalty checks were going down and all that. So I started applying and ended up in an interview for a company called Wardrock, where It fit me because their interview wasn't really a writing test. I suppose I already had established the chops with my books, but they tested my ability to install their software. So during the interview, they gave me a a MacBook and their documentation that I went through and I had problems, which apparently they expected. So I asked the interviewer about the problems and he responded, Mike, just run Kill9. And I responded, Kill9? I didn't quite put in these words, but are you kidding me? That Doesn't that create unclean processes? And at that point, given the look the interviewer gave me, I, I was convinced that's what told them to hire me. So that's how I start my career in tech writing. It's a trap. <laughs> so were you writing books before you actually held the title as technical writer in a company? That's correct. I mean... I was thinking of going straight into technical writing, but as strange as it sounds, I was intimidated by the requirements at the time. I tried installing FrameMaker and couldn't do it. Once I managed to get it installed, I couldn't figure out what it was all about. And I thought, there's got to be an easier way. But by sheer luck, I stumbled upon somebody who needed help with a Windows 98 book. He said, Mike, would you like to write a few chapters for me? I said, sure. And a couple of months later, he said, Mike, I'm too busy to finish this book. 
here's the contact info for my agent. Here's the contract we have. And all of a sudden I had a career. Wow. So one more question. Did you get your start as a full-time writer of technical books before you started working in companies as a techno writer? That's correct. Yes, it sounds backwards. I'm sorry, I'm just amazed. Yeah, I think there's no standard path. I think that's one of the really interesting things that we've seen in all of our conversations is people just kind of end up... I I still don't think there's like a well-paved path at this point into kind of technical writing. I know there are some universities that offer roles and various things, but I do feel like a lot of people just kind of fall into the industry in different ways. Like there's not really the like, here's what you do. You go do this, you go to college, here's your internship, you know? (laughs) Very true. I don't know. It's almost like being able to create your own programming language. And you've done that for many years. And then you're like, oh, well, maybe I should just be a software developer, (laughs) even though I've created my own languages. Your background is very impressive. That's why I'm slightly speechless. I'm honored. Thank you. Cool, 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 cool. Let's go to the next question. I remember following you when you were at GitLab. So recently you went from working at GitLab where you collaborated with a team of technical writers. And then you started working at Cobalt, where you were the only writer. Can you tell us what was the transition like? What was surprising about being the sole writer on a team? I was recruited for the role. The person who recruited me was a product manager who said, frankly, I don't know much about writing, but I know what good documentation looks like. I want you to come in, create a getting started guide and create a documentation practice for us. And I thought, gee, that sounds challenging. It sounds like something that would use the skills that I had built up in my previous experience at GitLab and before it at Forge Rock. So I thought, I love the idea of having this kind of challenge. And besides, the pay was right. Always important. <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> The lone writer thing is always like a really interesting topic. I feel like at Write the Docs, it's a very common experience, I think, for a lot of people because like the number of writers or kind of documentarians that are supporting a software team is often pretty large proportion of engineers for each writer. And so I think it takes a a large company to have a team of writers, right? So I think it's a very common experience that a lot of people have is that kind of coming in. And that's awesome. You were able to kind of define a little bit more of the culture and the process. That's, I guess, one of the benefits. <laughs> and that's it. And thank you for helping define the process and, and the challenges there. When I came into Cobalt, we were somewhere north of 150 people and the company had been around for a few years, which means they had some form of documentation in various places, simply not the documentation that we're used to or is established as best practices as documentarians as technical writers. So how do I set that up? I think the biggest challenge for me is to, is learning to become an evangelist for practices I know that would help the company I work for establish itself with good documentation. I needed an elevator pitch. How do I set things up so we have a good process? How do we set up a single source of truth using Docs' code? How do we set up What I'm hoping for are the most readable security docs in the industry. Coming into a company like Cobalt, they do penetration testing as a service. They come up with reports for people. Security documentation is notoriously dense. It's denser than most documentation for developers. It's so dense, even most developers don't understand. How do we overcome those challenges? Yeah, I've 
definitely read a, a decent amount of security stuff. And yeah, the curse of knowledge, I think, is deep within that kind of realm of the world, particularly. <laughs> I mean, I've tried to establish some standards and I've been playing with different standards, things like Flesh Kincaid, Hemingway for readability. And while that provides a good first measure, it's not the whole story. I've looked at documentation that Flesh Kincaid considers a grade level 15, which to translate is essentially college level juniors. But I could tell was intimately readable. So it's a good first step, but it's not everything in terms of making things readable. Can we get back to evangelize? Oh, absolutely. How are you able to effectively get buy-in from your supervisors or co-workers on setting standards? Like, how do you sell that to them? I constantly write about it. What other people do, what the best in the industry does. Some of them will come back to me and say, Mike, but our competitors do this, this, and this. And I'm telling them, hey, I want to bring us, I want to bring Cobalt into the software realm, beyond the security realm of dense documentation, into the software realm where it's easier to describe what we do to a developer audience because ultimately they are the decision makers on who buys software, whether it be security or any other kind of software. So when you say evangelism, is that also kind of enabling engineers within the organization to do writing as well? Is that part of your evangelizing internally? both for kind of practices as well as approaches, the value of documentation, I guess. In my spare time, yes. As a lone writer, I'll put it this way. I laid out for my managers, this is what the headcount that we need to do everything I think we need to establish us as quote unquote world-class documentation for Cobalt. And I told them, hey, I think we need the headcount of four. They responded, Looking at my data, no, you need more than that. I thought, okay, at least I've sold that. But bottom line for us, because we grow slowly, is that I'm getting an extra writer this year and we're in the middle of the interview process for such. Yay, you'll no longer be the lone writer. Yes. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit, you've mentioned about good processes and part of the good processes you mentioned was docs as code. I was reading some of the notes that you sent us before the interview, and you mentioned you prefer React, Gatsby, but I believe your team is using Hugo. Is that right? That's correct. In an ideal world, if I had the coding chops, I would use Gatsby because I would then be able to integrate code directly from our front end to ideally make it a seamless experience to transition from our UI to our docs. But I'm just me. I could earn React, but that would take away time I need to do other things. It so happened that the people doing our APIs had already started documenting that in Hugo. So I took advantage of that. Let me be compatible with you. And ideally, and we have a process in place, let's turn that into the basis for our single source of truth. And with respect to a single source of truth process, people do that differently. And there are some misconceptions about it. Some companies, some groups, they'll say, okay, we'll put everything in a single Git repository and call that a single source of truth. And 
that isn't true unless you do things within that Git repository to make sure you're saying the same things in all of your document. Example, what it, we define penetration testing in a certain way. If people say it in different ways in different pages, then you've got a confusing message for your users. Standardize, standardize, standardize. We struggle with that a lot. How do we talk about the product? How do we talk about these different terms? Yeah, I think that's a great example of really a way to unify your messaging because, yeah, it is. It's really easy, especially with multiple people writing different pieces of content to describe things pretty wildly differently. <laughs> I've even come up with a motto to help help sell this. Write once, publish everywhere. We publish stuff in a bunch of different channels. Product documentation, Zendesk articles, website blogs, internally in Confluence. How do you know that you're saying the same thing everywhere? Single source of truth. Okay. I love this, but can we take a step back? I love this because many teams struggle with which tools to use to host their documentation. And it was very useful that you walk through your process of like you preferred Gatsby, but there's a cost of like learning React. And there's also a benefit to, hey, this team is already using Hugo. Why don't we continue using Hugo? Because like some teams just like to greenfield everything to their detriment. Uh Right. And if you greenfield everything, then you're going away from a single source of truth. Yes, you could still do it if you have different tool sets, but it makes it harder. And in terms of single source of truth, we were talking about like standardizing and unifying the message. How do you go about starting a style guide from scratch? The style guides really help with that standardization. You don't. There are established style guides in the industry and... Those style guides have created expectations among software users. They expect to see OK or Yes or Save or some other button in certain places. And since those are established, you can use those style guides and pull from them. Yes, you'll customize those style guides for something specific. I mean, Cobalt has a specific language all its own. We do penetration tests. We call it pen tests. Thus... I guess for simplicity's sake, I include the word pen test as an acceptable word in our spell checks. But once you have those style guides, you can start the automation process as well. There are tools out there, Veil is the most prominent of them, that serve as a quote-unquote grammar checker, which allows you to check these words. It allows you to check for things like Oxford commas. It allows you to check for active voice, for sentences that are too long. And once those are flagged, you can look at them and say, yeah, that's okay. I'll keep that. Oh, yeah, I should cut that down, etc." Your team certainly doesn't deal with not built here syndrome, which is excellent. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting maybe to kind of go back to one of our questions that we kind of had in our outline originally is kind of, what are some of the kind of common misunderstandings that engineers have about technical writing? I mean, I know you're kind of running into a little bit of this with your work internally talking to people using your elevator pitches. Is there anything kind of specific that you've run into there that's notable? A lot of what I do is related to our UI. In other words, I have to get into the UI text and there are people who'll come at me and say, Mike, have we worded this right? And I'll say, wait a second, I need time to research this. 
Where does this come from? How does this go in the flow of the UI? What does the user expect? And once I've established all that and check that against established style guides, only then and only then can I come up with an answer. And the answer frequently sounds really nitpicky. When you say, no, you don't establish style guides, say you don't need punctuation here. I can understand if people ask, Mike, why are you bothering with this? And sometimes I shouldn't, but we want to establish a practice that works. Sometimes I shouldn't be so picky because I want to say, okay, I want people to listen to me. So there's judgment involved with all this. If I go too far and be too picky, then people will stop asking for help. Totally. Yeah, I think that's a, a common security thing, actually, kind of a little tangential. But I think normally that's kind of some of the folks I know that work in security within companies. They say, you know, if we get a reputation for just saying no all the time, people just stop asking. <laughs> and I think it, it works with any team. You need to be working with people. You need to be enabling what they want to do, not telling them they can't do something. And I think that's a very important way to view the role. <laughs> in your last story, Mike, you mentioned... An engineer coming to you and tell me if I am not paraphrasing this correctly. Have we worded this right? And you've looked up this information in the style guide and you gave the engineer an answer. Which parts, if any, do you think should be automated in a style guide? As much as possible. Style guides have limits. I think the biggest limit for automation is word complexity. You can put in a, a bunch of short words into a short sentence and a style guide, of automated style guide will tell you a fourth grader can read it. But if they're really technical words, right. no, they can't. Yeah, and I, I find people like being told no by machines much more than humans. It's much easier <laughs> to automate those things. And especially if you can run it locally before, you know, like a pre-commit hook or even in your editor in the best case, but that's a little harder. Yeah, having that ability to really have that kind of live or somewhat real-time feedback where it's not this, you know, I think part of the frustration of the review process is the latency in it. And so if you're able to say, while I'm doing this project, I can validate it's going to pass the veil, whatever lint I'm running. I think that adds a lot of value to the person actually creating the document rather than having it be this, you know, two days later, once I'm already working on another task, somebody comes back with a bunch of nitpicks or whatever. <laughs> It's nice to have a lender that says you forgot a bracket in your JSON file or you forgot this Oxford comma. Once it's automated in that way, the people who write will react in the same way. I'm going to use that in life. Whenever I want to say no, I'm going to make sure the computer says it and not me. Is <laughs> <laughs> it maybe a tangent, but I find that works a lot in business as well. When people ask for something, they're like, oh, sorry, our tool doesn't support that. Not like, I'm not going to do that for you, but like, oh, no, sorry. It's impossible for me to enable that for you. <laughs> Eric, I love this. This is like invaluable advice to our audience. <laughs> you need to say no, have the machine do it or say the machine can't do it <laughs> instead of it. You don't want to. <laughs> Mike, how do you find community when you're the only technical writer? Like, who do you bounce ideas off of and say, hey, if this is right. How have you dealt with this situation before? So. I couldn't have become a lone writer at Cobalt without the help of the Write the Docs community. I find. Oh, well, yay! I, I mean, seriously, my 
questions and hopefully my help to others have accelerated on the write the doc slack since i started at cobalt i'll i'll ask a bunch of questions when i decided to use hugo even though it's the easy button according to the good docs project there's still challenges to implementation there's still things that i want to implement that aren't in the basic toolkit i've asked questions how do i do it since i was fortunately able to open source my docs repository i was able to ask and say hey can you look here what would i need to edit in this pull request to make this work and open sourcing the documentation repository in a security company was itself a challenge i had to establish with our security engineers that i was going to follow certain practices in fact at least as far as i know our product documentation repository is the only open source repository for cobalt interesting congratulations for open sourcing it well i mean even further we're establishing a program where our penetration testers will contribute to our documentation when i talked about this with our lawyer without my prompting he suggested mike why don't you use a creative commons license i said wow thank you very much given my open source background. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, no, and that's such an interesting way. Having it be open source, it kind of you like front load all the legal wrangling (laughs) instead of like each tester coming in and having to do this long process or whatever, you already have it kind of publicly accessible. And so I think so much of the beauty of open source is that kind of like scalability and standardization instead of here's a custom license every time we need to give out this repository to some company and we have to go spend two weeks back and forth on signing documents or whatever, right? It's like, oh, look, Creative Commons. Like, we're just using this document everybody understands. And it just makes things so much smoother. I think that the legal aspects of collaboration through open source are actually something that a lot of people don't appreciate quite as much. But I think it's huge, especially for a company that isn't as open source focused and maybe a little more security minded, right? Having that kind of front loaded, I think, probably makes your job a lot easier. It does. Uh, Having the Creative Commons license is relatively new, so I anticipate having to make it part of my pitch. But if I feel like I don't want to explain that too much, I can now at least say, this is what our lawyer recommended. Almost as good as the the computer saying you to do it. (laughs) (laughs) This might be a very simple question. You might have already explained it before. But even though there's a Creative Commons license, it seems like open sourcing the product documentation is a lot of work. Could you go over some of the motives on why a company would want to open source at least part of their documentation? It's been essential for me. I couldn't have gotten the help I did to create our documentation tooling without it. I mean, it's easy enough to ask questions in a Slack, but if the documentation, if the tooling, if the repository were closed source, I couldn't give the full story. Happy, but with open source repository and licensing, I can give a full story and people can volunteer to contribute under the license and understand what's going on. Oh, that's very clever. Open sourcing your documentation as a way to just get different eyes on it. And I think this relates to the last question about how do you work as a lone writer and how do you find community and open sourcing documentation is a great way to give back and also for them to help you too. I just think this is a really good story and a really great way to advocate why more companies should embrace 
open sourcing their knowledge and open sourcing like some of their documentation. I mean, I couldn't do everything that I'm doing with Cobalt without the open source help. It's for me, I guess in business terms, it's a force multiplier. (laughs) And now that we're going to our community in a limited form to our community pen testers, we're going to have other force multipliers as well. I've got an authorization to set up a program where like DigitalOcean and Linode, we're going to pay contributors for substantive articles. But I guess I should add the proviso or repeat it that for now it's limited to a certain class of contributors. This interview is honestly a master class of how to be a leader as a technical writer. All the stories that you're giving, all the techniques that you're giving in this interview has so much value. And once again, thank you so much for being so generous with how you proceed with being a leader in Cobalt and beyond. This is gold. Thank you. A leader? Who, me? I mean, I'm not saying that to be modest. I'm just expressing what I've done in order to clarify it in my own mind. When I talk here, when I ask questions in the Write the Doc Slack, when I respond to questions, I think, oh, yeah, I can use that too. So as much as I hope this helps others, it helps me as well. Yeah, I always find it very clarifying to understand what you're doing when you have to explain it to other people. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I think there's an analogy there for writing documentation as well, right? Like (laughs) you understand your product better that way by explaining it to users. That's one of the other things I try to evangelize, not just at Cobalt, but also within the Write the Docs community. If you're a technical writer and have written about a product, at least in an ideal world, you've become a subject matter expert, at least on what you've written about. Yes, there are cases where that's not necessarily true. We're all overloaded, but I can't write authoritatively about something unless I understand it. Yeah, I think we're maybe going full circle here. One of the things that I believe is that like, you don't get chosen to write a book about a topic by being the expert on it, but it's more that writing the book about the topic turns you into the expert. And I do think there's some wisdom to that. It's really that process of taking your existing knowledge and putting it down and in the form of some kind of authoritative reference that really forces you to to understand it in a deeper way, I guess. Eric, and I think that's really the key to dealing with imposter syndrome. So I think people get it backwards. You're not the expert. The process actually makes you into an expert and that we're all on this journey learning and just leveling up. And that's it. I think there are a lot of writers out there who have the imposter syndrome of thinking, well, I've written all about this, but I'm not the SME. Yes, you are. You've written about it. You've learned how to do it. You know it from a user point of view. You've become the SME, at least as far as what you've written about. And speaking of leveling up, so our final question is, how can someone who is the only technical writer on the team improve or level up their skills? Like are there any other methods? So in a few days, we're going to have the Write the Docs conference in Portland. Yeah. I've already gotten uh, several talks that I've pointed at to think, okay, I can learn something from this, this, and this. But in terms of leveling up, I'm an advocate for not limiting yourself to writing conferences as a 
technical writer. You can't limit what you learn to just the knowledge, pardon me, the craft of writing. You need to learn about your subject matter. Since I now work for a security company, I focus on security practices as well. There's the security track at the Open Source Summit, for example. Since I'll also be writing about APIs, we have the API Specifications Conference. There are other great conferences out there where you can level up your technical knowledge. And I believe that's something that a lot of writers miss. Strong agreement there. Yeah, definitely focusing on the ecosystem of your company as well as your role, right? I I do think is a huge way to add value. Yeah, and that's something that not enough people talk about either. Not only do you have to become a better writer, but you also just have to be more knowledgeable about your domain. You don't go to a meetup about security, go to a meetup about, I don't know, the Jamstack. Learn more about your domain makes you a better writer. Yeah, and just as a another kind of follow-up, even if you're not able to attend the conference, there's lots of videos. The conference talks will be released for free online as well. So you can always go back and find content that way as well. That's a good method. I know one of my goals for this month is to watch a conference talk every day. And so, yeah. Ambitious. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy. It's actually a great way to network too. So you just like watch the talk and then you like email the person and just tell them all the stuff that you learned and they're like, oh, wow. And then you like start a conversation. So. I mean, it's super flattering to the speaker as well, right? Like if I would love someone to like, yeah, like six months later after I give a talk to be like, oh, this was so good. It's like, oh, you're, you're my new best friend for the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As we've mentioned earlier in this podcast, it is a force multiplier. <laughs> when you listen to a recorded talk, there are options out there to speed up the playback. Abby, there sometimes you don't have to listen to everything slowly. Abby, since it's recorded, if you need to listen to it again, you can go back. I listen to a lot of my audiobooks on like 1.2 or 1.5, depending on the, the narrator. And yeah, I do think I do a lot of walking while listening to podcasts. And yeah, it would be very easy to have a technical talk from a conference or something, not just technical content, of course, but pull out my phone if there's a slide I need to look at. But I find a lot of that stuff works well as audio only as well, if that fits more into your life. But yeah, there's a lot more versatility, right? With a recorded video or <laughs> something along those lines. That's a really good technique that I'm going to steal. But I think even the overarching point is you don't have to feel bad if you can't go to all of these conferences. You don't have to feel, well, I don't have the money. I don't have the flexibility. There are definitely other ways to engage with the content that's presented at these conferences that are more, that's more accessible. And in this age, a lot of conferences still have virtual options and virtual options are frequently more affordable than attending in person. That's true. That's probably the silver lining of what has happened in 2020. We've just become better at communicating and getting our points across asynchronously. As much as I personally love being in person and with people, it's just, even if you can do it, it's just not practical. And sometimes it's just great. Was Oh, okay. Well, there's this conference, there's an online portion. And so I can also be a part of it. All the same benefits of not commuting to work are the same as not commuting to a conference, except the commute is much further for most people. <laughs> I wish I had a, I wish you had a mic drop for that. Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> I do 
profoundly miss the like humanity of gathering in person. Of course, there's definitely a significant silver lining to the whole world kind of leveling up on virtual events. I, I guess is what <laughs> I mean, think. I want to go back to conferences in person, but virtual conferences are more inclusive. Very true. Yeah, well, I, I could go on a whole tangent about what the future holds there, but I don't think that's quite the topic of this conversation. <laughs> yeah, and we've reached an end to this conversation. And before we end, Mike, is there anything that you like to promote? Talks, books, articles, clever things have you said on Write the Docs, Slack channel? Well, I guess based on my focus at Cobalt, I've been focusing a lot on UI text and I've been taking a lot of my own lessons learned from a talk I gave to the open source convention back in 2017. The title of the talk is UI text. Simplicity is difficult. It's available on YouTube and I'm guessing you can include a link to the, this talk. Yes, we'll definitely put it in the show notes. Well, Mike, thank you for hanging out with us today. This was so enlightening. I've learned so much talking to you and just learning how to be a part of the community, learning how to give back to the community and learning how to create something that's bigger than you that you would create yourself. So, Mike, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. And all of this is fun. This conversation, participating and contributing to places like the Write the Doc Slack. And because it's fun, I do it with relish and actually learn something from it. Yeah, definitely nice to have kind of the uh, reciprocal relationship where you're able to learn by teaching, I guess, is one way to, to think about that. And yeah, thanks so much for coming on and yeah, sharing all of your knowledge. Thank you for joining us today. To stay up to date on future episodes, subscribe for free to this podcast on your favorite podcast app. You can find us on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Please share this podcast with friends and colleagues. If you have ideas for future episodes, or if you would want to come on as a guest, please email us at letstalkdocs at sustain.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, keep writing and shipping those docs. <laughs>